Thank you, men. We continue now, echoing that worship. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, our current residence of study. Romans 9. In one sense, we just want to pick up where we left off last time. If you remember, zeroing in on verse 5, God has always been God over all. He's always been that. He's the eternal God, as we just sang. God over all. He is sovereign God. However, not all, as we've seen in our Roman study, respond to him that way. He is that, but not all respond to him that way. As such, the reality and the pattern in history is a winnowing and a revealing. That's what you see in history. The winnowing and revealing of a remnant, which would be a tiny part of the whole, that does recognize God, recognize Him rightly, bearing faith in God. Very, very tiny remnant recognizes God rightly. If you think back with me to the beginning, there was Noah and his family of eight. Eight out of an entire globe. Eight, the only ones responding in faith to God. That remnant, that flood-surviving remnant is described this way in Genesis 7.23. Only Noah, the text says, only Noah was left and those who are with him in the ark. Moving further, and we zero in on Israel now, where Paul is taking us in Romans. In Israel, there's always been the same. Recall with me Elijah... And as God told him, Elijah and the 7,000 that had not what? Bowed the knee to Baal. That remnant out of the rest of Israel, where the rest of Israel had every mouth kissing Baal. 1 Kings 19, 18. Further, in Israel, there was the remnant God chose to keep alive amid the exile. You might recall this from Ezekiel 6, 8 to 10. Through that prophet in judgment, Yahweh said this, Yet I will leave some of you alive. Note the language. When uh, you have among the nations some who escape the sword, and when you're scattered through the countries, a remnant through that, then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive, how I have been broken over their whoring heart that is departed from me, And over their eyes that go whoring after their idols. And they will be loathsome in their own sight for the evils that they have committed for all their abominations. And they shall know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would do this evil to them. Just a small remnant, Yahweh says, that will be left alive. Noted, a remnant in Israel. By God's hand, hear that in Ezekiel, that repent and remember. The remnant, by the way, not just a past reality, but a future certainty as well. Let's hear from another prophet, Isaiah. Isaiah 10, 20-23, prophetically says this, In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people Israel will be a sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end, is decreed in the midst of all the earth. Westmount, God Almighty has always been interested in the remnant. Always. The remnant that has endured through history, the few of the whole that God has called and who recognize him and respond to him in faith. It's the remnant. That remnant, of course, has been most clearly seen within the nation of Israel. God has called a nation, an entire people group, an entire ethnicity, Israel. But within Israel, there's been a group of individuals, Jerry referenced them this morning already, that are a remnant, they are the true ones, the Israel within Israel. A small fraction of people out of the entire people. Such is Paul's focus now as we continue in Romans 9. So let's just pick that up as that's the focus for Paul. Verse 6, look with me. 
But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For that, this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Let's pray. Father, we ask and plead in Christ's name that you would give us eyes to see, minds to understand, and hearts to receive your word this morning. Lord, as we bring many things to this text, we ask for your enablement, Lord, to know it rightly, and then live it to your glory. We pray that now in Christ's name. Amen. Verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed. Now recall our context here. Coming off the reality of God's everlasting love for those who are in Christ. Chapter 8. The question might be asked as we arrive here. What of God's people, his chosen people, who reject Messiah? Who reject the Christ? Has God moved beyond them? Or has God replaced them? That's a natural question. What of salvation for Israel? Good questions flowing from one that would be tracking. And listen, not just good questions in the first century, but those are questions I'm quite certain some of you have today in this century, this week, over the past three weeks. What of salvation for Israel? Who will save this embattled Middle Eastern state? Are they not, as we covered last week, verse 4, the Israelites? Do they not possess the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the law, the worship, and the promise? Is not, is not that who they are? Well, they do possess that. Yes, native Israelites, even today, like their forefathers did, do possess that. You may say, well, that compounds the problem if they still possess that, and look what's going on over there. However... This is key. Possessing it, Israel, right? Israel possessing it and recognizing it are two very different things. Is that not true? Possessing it and recognizing it are two very different things. More in God's program, listen, being a true Israelite was never just a matter of DNA. It never was. It was never a matter of ethnicity, or even being in possession of such sacred things. We see this as we unpack all of Scripture. The Israelite, chosen by God, was repeatedly called, this is an Israelite, a true Israelite, to respond to God rightly. Hence the true Israelite, right? Yes, being God's children is responding to God rightly. As God repeatedly, think of the prophets with me, repeatedly called Israel to what? Repent, turn, respond rightly. Repent, turn, respond. Respond to me, Yahweh says, in faith and trust. Faith, by the way, and we need to say this as well, especially with New Testament revelation. Faith, by the way, is also given, right? Was also given to a remnant in Israel. Like the adoption, like the covenants, it turns out faith is something that was given to the remnant as well. God gave all of Israel the gifts found in verse 4, but not all Israel was given faith. As such, not all within Israel are really and truly children of the promise. And this is where Romans now heads. Let us turn and consider these children. First, we're going to look at their character. That's our point, our first point. The character of the children. Look at verse 6 again with me. Let's return here. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. I want you to note, if you've been at Westmount for a while, hopefully this is just automatic. You note the word of contrast to open verse 6, right? You see the contrast. But that triggers a contrast in something. 
It's employed, remember, because of something that's just been said that might trigger something. And note the contrast here as we note the context. What does Paul say in contrast? Well, Paul says in verse 6 something that is coming off of what he said in verses 1 to 5. And what was that? About the sorrow and anguish of Israel's unbelief. In other words, here, here's the point. He's in sore and anguish because they're not living the way they should be as God's chosen people. They're not responding rightly. And it gives him sore and anguish as a fellow Israelite. Recall the issue Paul is addressing here is how do we think now, in light of that, they possess these things but are not acting accordingly. How do we think about the Word of God and the many Old Testament promises in light of the nation of Israel's rejection of Christ? Maybe you've thought of that. How do do we think through these things? They were given these great gifts, the adoption, the covenants, the worship, the glory, but they're not responding as such. Many questions may go through your head. So let's consider verse 6 in light of that. Look again, and we could say it this way, but it is not as though, we could, uh, as we're thinking through, we could say this, it's not as though, given what I've just said, Paul says, about my kinsmen according to the flesh and their obvious continual rejection of Messiah, So as though the word of God has failed. Obviously, one Paul could say, reader, look around with me. And is this not true in the first century? How much more true in this century? It seems like the word of God has failed. What of the Israelite not responding to Messiah? It seems to naked eye that the word of God has failed, right? This is just so potent today. Many would say that. It would seem that the word of God has failed. Paul knows, however, the word of God never fails. To all, and especially Israel, would know this. Listen to Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, you know this text. Isaiah 40, 6 to 8, says this. By the way, coming off of the first half of the book of Isaiah, which is about judgment, decreed for their failure to turn. And when he turns, and you know the hinge there in Isaiah 40, right? Comfort, comfort my people, One of the bookends to now the comfort that will unfold in the chapters that follow in Isaiah from 40 on, he says this in verse 6. Listen, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. Think about that in light of what Isaiah is talking about. The grass withers, the flower fades, but what? The word of our God will stand forever. What God has said will stand and it will come to pass. The word of God never fails. And Paul, of course, knows this. In fact, even more, think about the first half of Isaiah. Another passage is maybe going through your mind. It's not as though anguish and disaster have never been promised to Israel. Israelites, it's... A mindset that maybe we get into, right, as Christians. Well, I'm a Christian now, and I'll never know sorrow or anguish, right? Well, here's the thing, right, with Israel. He decreed it. He decreed it that they would know that. Listen to Jeremiah 32, 42. These are the words of Yahweh. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people. Note that. Who is bringing it? Yahweh is. Just as I brought that, so I will also bring upon them all the good that I promised them. Since it's always been in concert together. Not just the, the goodness and the promise, the disaster with it. One imagines then, think in Egypt, in Exodus 1. Think in the exile, year number 37. Imagine just parachuting into one of those years, talking to a Jew. Has the word of God failed? Look what Pharaoh's doing to us. We remain in exile. Right? No. As that word did not fail, so too the word remains unfailing in Israel's unbelief. Listen, beloved, even to this very day. The word of God hasn't failed because of what's going on over there. One could say in a grand sense, just give it time. Oh, how impatient we are, aren't we? Wait on the Lord and see. Wait and see. However, Paul will give us more here. He helps us think through the people of Israel. Back to verse 6. Look at it. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. 
few things here. First, Paul's language is very helpful here. He says, look again, not all who descend from Israel. So look at that wording with me. That is wording pointing to what? Lineage, DNA, ethnicity. This is the physical Israelite. Do you see that? Descended, descendants. And Paul simply says here that while every single Israelite is a descendant, that is true, Every single Israelite is a descendant of Israel in that way, biologically. There's another way in which they do not belong to Israel, right? Now, just hold on to that for a moment. Paul's going to continue to elaborate for us in one moment as we get on to the other verses. But first, we need to just follow him here. He goes further. He makes sure we understand the point. Look at verse 7. He says, And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Again, we gain understanding through studying the words Paul is using. Every inspired word, we need to look at it. He says, on one hand, there are children of Abraham. A well-known synonym for Israel, yes. But in a sense that Paul is already covered in this letter. Turn back with me to Romans 4. It's not just a synonym for Israel. But here, when he speaks of children of Abraham, it's a synonym for the true Israel, the true children. And Romans 4, recall it with me. Who are the children of Abraham? Look at Romans 4, verse 11 to 12. It says this, He received the sign of circumcision as a seal, this is Abraham, of course, of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well. They're simply Abraham, in one sense, the predecessor of even the faithful Gentile. Right? He's the man of faith, and we covered that in Romans 4. But here's the key in verse 12. And to make him also, note this, the father of the circumcised. Now note the limiter here, who are not merely circumcised, because every Jew would say, well, yeah, we're all, that's us, right? But who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Do you see that? All Israel would say, yes, circumcised, covenant-keeping, in the family. But what does Paul do here in Romans 4? He limits it to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Within Israel, the true Israel within Israel are the ones of faith that walk in the steps of Abraham. Don't just have the bodily marks of Abraham. They have the faith in their soul that Abraham does. And that's key. The children of Abraham then are those of faith, not just ethnicity and line, Right? Those of faith within Israel. And beloved, this is the point. In one sense, if you've got that already, you've got the point. Right? Genuineness is not a matter of DNA. And you're thinking right now of all of the clashes that the Israelites had with Jesus. This was so often the point. Abraham's our father. We're good. We're good. And on that, before we turn back to Romans 9, let's, this is very important. Let's turn to that ministry. Let's look into one glimpse of Jesus' ministry, John 8. Turn there with me, and let's see this together. Very key interaction here, talking about lineage and faith. Jesus, as I just mentioned, repeatedly attacked from the Pharisees, right? Questioning his authority, and so on, even taking shots at times about his own lineage, and so on. So we're going to read this portion a little longer, but I hope it will be helpful for us. Let's start in verse 31. So this is right in the middle of, again, many discourses we could go to, but this one particularly gets at it. Look at verse 31 with me. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, the faithful ones, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone how is it that you say you will become free? Now look what he's going to do here. He has his disciples in front of him. But he's going to do his own winnowing with his own words. Look at this. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Notice one thing Jesus does here. He goes not to ethnicity. He goes directly to what? Practice. Did you see that? He's like, let's, you're getting so caught up in your family tree and lineage. He goes to practice. Verse 37, I know that you are offspring, biologically, of Abraham, right? We could say. 
Yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. Do you see what Jesus is doing there? We can talk lineage, but there's something else going on inside you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you've heard from your father. Here's the continued winnowing, revealing the remnant. Verse 39, they answered him, Abraham is our father. You know that, right? They stand before him. Well, Abraham's our father. Jesus, you're getting a little too penetrating here. Abraham's our father. And Jesus said to them, listen to this, if you were Abraham's children. This is, by the way, to an Israelite, right? Or Israelites. If you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. Do you see how he ties the two together? Not just ethnicity, what? Practice, faith. You would live like him. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You were doing the works your father did. Now watch what Jesus does here, speaking of ethnicity. They said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. There's the jab, right? We have one father, even God, probably taking a shot at Jesus' birth, right, with Joseph and Mary. We have one father, even God, says the good Jew, right? Jesus said to them, now listen to what he says. If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. And then listen to this. Imagine the sting to the Jew. Verse 44. You are of your father who? The devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? I tell the truth. Why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you're not of God. Jesus does two things there. He says, not only, not only is a child of Abraham not having to do with ethnicity and faith, or ethnicity and line, I'm sorry. Secondly, let me tell you about your true lineage. When you reject Messiah, and here in context, assault his authority. Jesus says, you want to talk about Lineage? You're of your father who? The devil. And beloved, the implication, maybe you're thinking it right now if you're tracking with me. Yes. Anyone, anyone who doesn't align that way and respond rightly, in one sense by implication, anyone that rejects Messiah, what's the implication? I don't need to say it. That's what Jesus has just said. Jesus says to the ethnic Jews here, you are offspring of Abraham. Look at verse 37. But you are not Abraham's children, verse 39. You're children of the devil. So see here from Jesus, lineage is not what makes you a child. And we need to pause for a moment to see things are rattling around in our mind. And let's be clear on thinking. If you are here and maybe missed what Jerry said when we did the table, and you are here and you call yourself a Christian because you came from a Christian home, you need to sit up straight. If you are here with just some assumptions about your faith, because of anything in your biology, your grandfather was a minister, or your grandmother prayed for you, you need to sit up straight. The Word of God says time and time again, the children of God are not ones because of biology. They're placed by adoption into Jesus Christ because of faith given by God. Beloved, please sit up straight with me. Why are you a Christian? If some of the first things that come out of your mouth is, well, I was brought up in a Christian home and my parents are really good people, we need to sit up straight. Back to Romans 9. Paul is saying then that not all are children of Abraham simply because they are his offspring, his physical descendants. This again is the key. Listen, Westmount, you can be from Israel in that sense physically, but there's only one way to belong to Israel truly, and that is spiritually, by faith, with faith like Abraham. Thus we can say not all who are descended from Israel bodily, physically, belong to Israel spiritually, faithfully. Beloved, consider the big picture in Romans here then. This is the gospel of God, is it not? Chapter 1, verse 1, this is the gospel of God. It's not lineage or heritage or upbringing. Or if you are Jew or Gentile, chapter 1, 16, chapter 2, 9, it is faith. 
that flattens any ethnic distinction. And faith, listen, not an amorphous faith in some deity. Oh yes, I can believe in God as well too. It's faith and trust in Messiah, in Jesus Christ. Faith and trust that's demonstrated, again what we've learned this morning, by abandoning yourself and putting your everything in Jesus. Not just Sunday mornings, not just with a spiritual meme, and not just the token Christian things. Everything you are in Christ. That's what it means to be a child of Abraham. Now the ability to respond right, even as you think that through this morning, is not something natural. If it's not natural to our character, Gentiles, listen, let's get back into the context. It's not something natural to the Israelites' character. Let's look at verse 7. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. First, then, to see immediately, that we need to see immediately, that's a a passive form, be named. That's action outside the Israelite happening to them. Quotation marks, too, by the way, will be a cue, like we'll see in verse 13, that we're going to the Old Testament as it is written. But here we see the quotation marks again. Cues, you mentioned how many times Paul is going to go to the Old Testament in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Well, Paul goes to Genesis 21, and we're going to head there too, but first let's get some context. So turn to Genesis 15. Beloved, I pray this is helpful as we understand what Paul is teaching here. In Genesis 15, remember, these are the early times of Abraham. And we've looked at Abraham so much here at Westmount, so I really won't belabor the point with context. I'll just simply read here, chapter 15, 1 to 4. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram as he was before, in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, a word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. See that? Now Abraham, as we continue in this account, will have a son soon. Right? But, you know, you know what's next, not by his wife, right? The next son we see is not by his wife. This is not a good scene. Turn to chapter 16, first four verses. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, note the fact, right, they had original names and they were renamed by God, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, look at this, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. We learn at the end of this chapter that the son born there through this union is Ishmael. You heard Daryl referencing that in the text that he read in Genesis 17, 18. This is Ishmael. Ishmael was a child. Now note this, a biological child, an offspring, a son of Abraham, right? That's what Ishmael was. In fact, even more, he was a circumcised child, we could say as well. In a greater overall ethnic sense, he was that. But a son he might have been, and he was that, but he was not the promised son that God gave. Go to chapter 18. Again, this is what we read already, so we won't belabor. Just look at chapter 18, verse 10. Remember the account? The Lord said, I will surely return to you, Abram, about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Now, this is the verse that Paul references in Romans. In an earthly sense, the problem here, as you've seen already, is that Sarah is barren, right? This is why she laughs. If she was barren when the son was promised and resorted to Hagar for a child, how much more now, we estimate 13 years later? This is why Sarah laughs. How is this possible biologically, physically? Now, here's where we need to see the connections. Let's not fade. Turn to Genesis 21. This is just so important. Abraham, on one hand side, had a son by natural means through a fertile Hagar. Hagar. He had a son. And we all would say, yeah, I understand how that goes. Right? On the other hand, Abraham also had a son by supernatural means placed by God. 
Look at verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Note the contrast between Sarah's scheming, works of man, and the placement of God. Do you see that? The promise and placement of God. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. You just, do you not just feel the emotion of that text? What's Sarah saying? Let me paraphrase. It was impossible. But I have a son. Hagar, doing the thing with Hagar, Easy. You don't need a biology degree to figure that out, but this is impossible, Sarah says. Beloved, stay with me. This is the promise. This is, impo- this is the work of man. We do this. Only God can do this for a child of promise. Amazing stuff here. Placed by God. Yahweh says to Abraham, and again, Paul references this, through Isaac, Not Ishmael. Through Isaac, your offspring will be named. Through the one I placed in Sarah's barren womb. Not the one your wife contrived with to have through the maidservant. By the way, as you look at the verse here, not only is it also what is being referenced here by Paul, a passive form in the Hebrew, the word named in the Hebrew, the word is actually karam, which means call. So to be named by God is to be called by God. Do you see that? They're intertwined. Calling, of course, the key characteristic of those of God, right? And we've looked at this. The called out ones then are the true children of Abraham, born of promise. We'll look at calling more in a moment as Paul refers to it later. But, Weston, we have to pause and consider the character of these children. Ishmael, again, a son of natural means. A son by Sarah's plans, man's plans. Yet a child of Abraham. Isaac. A promised son to a barren womb given by God, placed by God, but also a child of Abraham. Both descendants of Abraham, but two very different children, right? And that's the point as we return now to Romans 9. And I pray this is gaining clarity. Not all from Abraham, verse 7, are children of Abraham, which means to be a true child of Abraham. A child of promise truly belonging to Israel means you're named by God, as Jacob and Israel were. And called by God, as Isaac was. As mentioned, Paul will elaborate so that we get it. So we'll look at it now. Look at verse 8. This means it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I'll return and Sarah will have a son. She shall have a, a son. Paul again referring here to Genesis 18.10. We looked at that and specifically the promise that God has made. Listen, this is the character of the children. The true Israel in view here. The children of Abraham, children of God, by promise. That's the characteristic. They're children of promise. Children of the flesh, right? Look at verse 8. Like Ishmael are not the children of God. But verse 8, the children of the promise like Isaac are counted as true, real offspring. And note that counted as offspring. You've seen that word, look at it, counted or reckoned or credited to an account. Almost a a legal, administrative term. And we've seen it before in Romans with Abraham in chapter 4, where it was associated with faith. Remember, faith being counted as righteousness. That's the character of saving faith, is it not? To have righteousness credited to your account. As such, and there's no surprise here, that character of the saved is the character also of the children of promise in Israel. They, like Abraham, are named, called by faith. Yet remember, back in chapter 4, we learned that such character of the true children was not just relegated to Abraham or to Israel. Remember this. I remind you again, Romans 4, listen to 23 to 25. It said this, But the words, it was counted to him, Abraham, were not written for his sake alone. So not just for Abraham, but for ours also, Paul says. It will be counted to us Who is this us who believe in him, who raised him from the dead, Jesus our Lord? Counted to us, that's you and me as well, Christian, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So much here 
As for the true Israel within Israel, so too the true children among the nations. This is the point. To be children of God is to be ones by faith. We share that character of faith given by God and the reality that we are called by God through a promise in eternity past. We saw that, of course, in Romans 8, 28 to 30. That's the character of the children. The remnant always possessed that. Their time left. Let's look at our second and final point, the calling in the promise. Paul is always out front of our thinking as he develops his arguments. Here he anticipates a rebuttal to the Ishmael-Isaac example. And it might go something like this. Well, we know Ishmael is not Israel because he's not of Sarah. In fact, he's a half-brother. So we know that, Paul. It just seems redundant. Jews, remember, in John 8, were really obsessed with ethnicity and lineage. So while one may have tracked with Paul's point of a true child of Israel, he recognizes that no Jew, here's the key, no Jew would ever say that Hagar is their mother. No Jew would say that. Still thinking line, right? To that, Paul takes us one generation down in Israel's history. Look at verse 10. And watch what he does here. He says, and not only so. In other words, not only Isaac, right? Let's go down now to Isaac's children. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Watch carefully here. Isaac, the son of the promise, in turn would have children by wife Rebekah. Genesis 25, 19 to 23 records the birth of Isaac's children, which mark this. Now listen, you know this. Who were Isaac and Rebekah's children? Two sons, both by the same father and mother, and more, both conceived in the very same act. And you say, that could only be true of who? Twins. You see that? Same father and mother, same act. Look what Paul is doing here. They were Jacob and Esau. So much we could say here, but let's at least note this fact. Rebekah, like Sarah, her mother-in-law, was barren. And conception was granted by prayer, and of course, ultimately by who? God, who filled the womb. So important. So we're far from Abraham and Hagar. This is Isaac and Rebekah. And listen, sons given just like Isaac was. So key. So Paul's point, what's the point? Is that there is absolutely, in these two sons now, next generation down, nothing distinguishing these next two in terms of lineage and act. Do you see that? This is what Paul wants to say. Okay, you're rebelling against Hagar. Let's go down. Let's look at Jacob and Esau from Rebekah. There's nothing distinguishing them. In fact, in fact, Westmount, listen. Paul says, if we want to talk lineage, to the ancient Jew, the preeminence would have gone to who? The older, right? The older. And the older of Jacob and Esau was who? As we know our Old Testament. Esau. Esau was the older. Genesis 25 records that fact. Esau, remember the red, hairy firstborn? Little ball of fur that came out first. After Jacob was born, that's Esau. He came first. So one would expect Esau to be the son of the promise, right? Esau is the son of the promise. He is not. Look at verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works... But because of him who calls, she was told, here it is, the older will serve the younger. In other words, Esau will serve Jacob. And there's just so much here. The text cannot be more plain. First, uh, beloved, I want you to just see the text can't be plainer. Jacob, the younger, was called, look at it, verse 11, not because of anything he did, good or bad. In fact, Jacob was called before he was even born. Do you see that in verse 11? called not because of anything in or done by him. Now this, Westmount, should not surprise us, should it? This is what we just covered with Isaac in verse 7 and what we've covered also in Romans with Abraham. Remember back in chapter 4, Abraham called out of Ur because he looked up and reasoned his way to God and chose God? No. He's the father of many nations, not because he did anything in Ur, good or bad, or anything at all since leaving his mother's womb. Abraham, like Isaac, and like here Jacob, chosen. Look at verse 11. Plain, plain, plain. In order that, here's the reason, that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Westmount, this is the calling in the promise. 
This is the calling and the promise. This is unconditional calling. God calling according to his purpose, not our work. Brothers and sisters, we've commented often, this is the operation of God. We operate conditionally, don't we? We operate according to work and wages and what we think is due to us. That's us. But that's not the way of God. He calls unconditionally according to his purpose. Children of the promise, like Isaac, are named and called by God. And the called ones of the promise, like Jacob, are elected not because of works. By the way, Westman, this is not just an Israel operation. This is God's operation for all his own. To the Gentiles, the church, Paul said this. I'll read you a bit of Ephesians 1. He said this, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4, listen, even as he chose us in him when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he what? Predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. This is the purpose of God. Unconditional choosing. Eternity past choosing. Calling and placing in Jesus. Do we see this? Now, we need to pause here because you may or may not, depending on your background or thinking, you may or may not be surprised to know many do not like this passage and they don't receive it. Did you know that? They just don't like what this passage has to say. They really don't. And why? And we can understand this. They want to place our choosing in this equation. That's what they want to do. Well, didn't Jake or Esau do something here? What's going on? God chooses based on our choice. How it's reasoned. He looks down, see who chooses, and he chooses. In fact, you'll hear people say, what's the number one uh, retort to that thinking? It's what? It's not fair. Have you heard that? It's not fair that God does it. How do we respond to that? Let me at least offer you three things. We're really running out of time here. Number one, first off, beloved, can you just settle your heart in a millisecond for me? We do not want what is fair, do we? Do you want what's fair? Where would we be going if we got what's fair? You, you don't want what's fair. You want mercy is what you want, don't you? You want mercy. And some of us say, hallelujah, for the mercy of God. You don't want what's fair. Number two, what does the passage say? We have retorts in our heart. But beloved, we, we have said this for years at Westmount. What does the passage say? Look at verse 11. What does it say? Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that what? God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. That's it. What does the passage say? And three, what's the pattern of Scripture? Think with me. How was Abraham called? How was Moses called? How was David called? Do you remember the appointment of the 12 apostles in Jesus' ministry? All of them initiated... Elected, chosen, appointed by who? God. This is the pattern you see in Scripture all the time. Church, if we miss this, we'll really struggle with what's ahead. This is why I have to pause. We'll struggle with the rest of chapter 9, and I want to help you. But your struggle will start in the very next verse, and we end with this verse 13. It says, As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Again, as it is written, signals an Old Testament reference. This one here from Malachi 1. That verse does not just sound strong. Listen, it is. Simply love and hate. That's it. God says of these two brothers, look at it with me. Look at it. 13. One I loved, one I hated. Wow. Right? Wow. Jason, you say, there has to be a way you're going to stand up there and soften it for us. I just really appreciate what you do sometimes. You're going to explain this. You're going to soften it for us. So we walk away. we got lunch to get to. I don't want to feel bad going into that. You're going to soften this for us. I pray that only thing that I ever do up here is give you what the Word of God says. And there's no new insight. Do you know what love and hate means? Then you can understand this passage. Love and hate. It means Jacob I loved, the son of the promise. I loved him. I called him, and I gave him fate. It means Esau I hated the natural son, not of promise, not called, with no faith. In Malachi, those two brothers represent two nations, Israel, Jacob, Edom, Esau, which, by the way, also draws us back to the original birth promise in Genesis 25. 
In Genesis 25, 23, Yahweh says to Rebekah, two nations are in your womb. So in the promise, the original promise, this referred to nations. It's true. God loves one nation and he hates another. Now that is true in context of Genesis 25 and Malachi 1, but let's understand this as we're trying to understand love and hate. Even as we understand contextually what's going on here, listen, beloved, that doesn't solve our discomfort or address our emotional problem, does it? We just move the problem from what? A person to what? A people. You see that? If we say, okay, contextually it's nations, what? well, God, instead of loving one person and hating one person, loves a nation, hates another nation. God now hates more than one person. Even more, while the history of Edom reveals evil actions, I ask you, what about the history of Israel? How did they behave? Two, Paul is applying the Malachi 1 passage here directly to individuals within a group. That's been the whole point. Individuals within a group and out of a group. Let's not lose the context. Even if nations in context solved our discomfort, a national love is not what Paul is doing applying this text. Remember back to verse 6, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. He's in the remnant now. Paul goes within the nation of Israel, within the peoples to the people, and applying an Old Testament passage to individuals. Love of time betrays us, I know we're already over, and we have to bring this to a close, but let me help you. Just let's preview where we'll be next week. This will help to prove this. Look at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that by name I be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Pharaoh is a person. We're going to look at him next week. He's a person, right? Very, very clear in context. Paul is applying this, this truth of God, this love and hate in the election of God to people. Thirdly, God's call, his purpose of election, and this is the most important thing I want to say if you're struggling this morning, because you'll continue to struggle in these chapters. And please hear me as you leave today. God's purpose of election, look at verse 11, never ever, ever lessens human responsibility. Does that make sense? God's purpose of election never, ever, ever lessens human responsibility. More to say in the chapters ahead, but this is the responsibility Paul is going to raise in chapter 10. This is the point why people need to be sent, because there's a responsibility on every human creature to respond to Creator incarnate. As incumbent on Israel, so to all of humanity, we must repent and choose Christ. Just give me one more minute as we turn to Matthew 13 to close. And I do this so that we are all helped and we can walk away with understanding and application. Let's return to Israel here. Jesus giving a parable about the nation of Israel in chapter 13. And in fact, I'm not, time betrays me for reading it all, but you know about the parable of the weeds. Do you not? Some more acquainted with the King James would call it the parable of the wheat and the tares, right? You know that parable. And what is the parable? That everyone in the field is going to be okay. No, you know that parable is what? A winnowing, right? A remnant. And what does Jesus say in that parable? And you can go and read it after. It says what? Tear them up now? Going through churches, just pulling people out? No, he says, let them sit. But here's the key with Matthew 13, beloved, and this is where we again sit up. When does that winnowing happen? At the end. At the end. That's when it's revealed who the sons of God really are. Christian, listen to me. We are a remnant. I pray as Christ is in you, this is the principle at work in the visible versus the invisible church today. And it is never, this principle of winnowing, who are the sons of God, has never been more operative than in our day today. And let's close with this focus. Instead of how many angels on the head of a pen theologically and all of these things, what is amazing? You know what is really amazing, Christian, for you today? That you are called by promise 
as Jerry reminded us, that we Gentiles can partake in this remnant in Israel. Have you thought about that today? Have you given worship to God that you would even call me? Or do you want to win a debate and just protest and, and live this way? Or do you just want to fall on your knees and say, my God, you called me? What's your response to these hard things? You and I were as Ishmael, were we not? We were as Ishmael. You and I could be Esau. We certainly act like it. But we're not aligned with that offspring anymore. We're not aligned. This is what's amazing. It must cause us to worship. We were chosen, called, and purposed, and now we're adopted, ingrafted, and partakers as children of the promise. We too, grafted in as children of the promise. Beloved, where is your focus right now? Where is your heart? Is it in the Middle East? Is it in Maine? Are you concerned these things will happen here in Peterborough? Or that you are safe and secure, not just temporarily, eternally, in the hands of a sovereign God? What will you take out with you today with this doctrine that we're beginning to unpack? I pray that it's the latter. And I pray that you will want to sing in a moment as we will how absolutely marvelous and wonderful it is that anyone would love me, that the Savior would love me. What an amazing cry as we leave this place today. How marvelous the consideration, Christian, you and I are like Jacob, not Ishmael, not Esau. We're loved. The Savior loves you. Christian, the Savior loves you. And that love can never be taken away. Let's pray. Father, how marvelous indeed, how wonderful it is that we would be loved by a holy God. We recognize even we feel it still in these days, we stand condemned and unclean. We stand still with remnants of filthy rags. But Lord, you don't look on that. Your lens by which you look at us is Christ. You look at us in him. And that is a glorious thought. So Father, let that be our chorus as we leave this place, trusting you in all things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.